So what, I, what I'd like to do before I tell you what I'm going to talk about and get into it is ask you two questions. And you'll have to play with me a little bit here. I, the first question is, I'd like you uh, to point to where you think your mind is located. Show me. Where do you think your mind is located? Oh, very interesting. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Great. Uh, second question. Where do you think your wisdom is located? Wisdom. Where do you think your wisdom is located? Mm-hmm. That's interesting, too. I wasn't actually sure what answer I'd get with that, but I'm seeing... Here and I'm seeing here, where the first one it was mostly here that this is where the mind is located. Okay, great. That's what I was hoping for. Good. So um, I'm going to debunk both. I think, or we'll see. <laughs> so first of all, I want to point in just broad, general strokes to why is it that when I ask, and I believe, actually, if I asked pretty much any group influenced uh, by this modern world, where is the mind, we, we go like this. Unless, perhaps, you were uh, with a group of, of neuroscientists, they might actually point differently, as we know now that the, our uh, neurobiology is throughout our body and not just up here. But of course we point up here. The majority of us pointing up to our, our heads. And some of us were out you know, in the ethos and you know, weren't sure where it was. Um, but most of us went here. And, and, and you know, of course we do that. You know, the brain, right? The intellect. And this is uh, something that we value highly in, in our culture, uh, in, in worldwide culture now, right, is this, this brain, this intellect, um, the uh, ability to um, increase our intelligence, uh, our book smarts. We love the information highway, the faster, the better. Uh, we, we value productivity and production and... Um, uh, uh, the ability for our minds to produce. This is something that we really value, and I'm not saying anything against that necessarily, um, but we associate it all up here most of the time, don't we? In fact, we get really competitive about it. I was thinking about this this afternoon, how strangely competitive we can get. And maybe this is um, more of an American culture, but I, I think this is also spreading worldwide, that we get really competitive about our intellect and our intelligence and uh, are quite, I can get quite identified with it in terms of where we are in terms of everybody else. We can get really hard on ourselves about it, Right? Have you ever had that thought? Oh, I am so stupid. I need to, you know, know more. Or we get really hard on 
other people. We hold people to a certain standard, right, in terms of intelligence because there is this high price of value on it. Now, interestingly enough, even though we put a lot of value on it, we are in an age of uh, where we are, I would say, suffering in, in a great way from isolation. And when I think of the two, just our, our tendencies to be more isolated than perhaps we ever have been in community, and this value on uh, the intellect, on productivity, um, on the thinking mind, the two to me go hand in hand. You know, of course, as we are cultivating this competitiveness and this um, value on the thinking, 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 figuring it out mind, of course there's isolation, there's separateness. Not only separateness from each other, you know, this, as we are, uh, you know, separate, separated through our technology instead of, speaking to each other, now we can text each other. Have you ever sat in a restaurant and seen a table of people just texting? And you get this feeling they're texting each other. (laughs) And there's no real conversation, no eye contact, uh, no relating through body language. Um, So so there can be this real value of technology of of the intelligence that's gone into that. We have amazing minds that can create the world that we're in, and yet there is this separateness, this feeling of, you know, closed doors to to, um, the people around us. So there's that, that separateness, I think, that's happening with each other, but there's also a separateness that's happening inside. Um... You know, if this is what we're valuing and this is what we're cultivating, and being someone who works in schools a lot and education a lot, and, you know, unless you're in a, a real um, dedicated uh, school that is dedicated to social emotional awareness and things like this, um, this is what we're, we're cultivating in, in, our, in our children, and this is how we were raised that, to cultivate this, right? And so there becomes the separateness within as well. The separateness from the rest of our body, the intelligence of our heart and of this body. The separateness from um, what the earth and our little world around us has to share with us. The separateness from simply listening to each other, to ourself. So there's this great divide, it seems. I, sometimes I work with um, educators. I often work with educators, and there's a, an exercise that I bring in where we are learning about emotions in the body. And this whole this concept of emotions in the body is foreign to a lot of people. I've never done it here in, in this context, but I do it when I'm teaching secular mindfulness. Emotions in the body. But aren't those up here with our thoughts? Our emotions are very much tied up here. But actually, that's not true. There's a whole system of uh, feeling within this 
amazing structure that is below the neck. But we often miss that. And so I think that, you know, perhaps uh, native cultures and uh, wisdom, tra- wisdom traditions uh, have known this. This is not news, you know, known this for forever, right? And somehow we lost track of that. Somehow we're having to relearn that, that um, ability to come back in contact with the body, with the heart, with our instinct, with our intuition. All of which are much more informative to our ability to contact wisdom, I think, than just this thinking, figuring it out mind. Maybe some of you noticed this even just a while ago in the meditation. Anybody experiencing something that you wish you weren't experiencing? Raise your hand. (laughs) You can tell I'm a classroom teacher, right? (laughs) Yeah. And so you don't have to raise your hand this time, but um, those of you who did notice something that you wish wasn't happening, how long were you in your mind trying to figure out how to remedy it and get rid of it? (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I see nodding. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So we think that the answers are here, and yet when I asked where is the mind, and we pointed here, and then where is wisdom, that got really complicated, didn't it? (laughs) It didn't quite compute for some of you. Um, It wasn't so clear where wisdom was from. And so it's interesting that some of you kind of did one of these. Is it down here? It didn't quite seem right that it was from here, and I think there's a reason for that. As we are relearning to reconnect to ourselves, um, there's something that draws us downward, down into this body, down into the heart, wherever that is. You know, you could point to it here, but wherever that is. Uh, Down into this earth, the wisdom of this earth. It's not really floating up in this area, is it? And so I'm bringing all of this up because actually what I wanted to talk about this evening was a sutta um, called the Heart Sutra. And it's a beautiful, beautiful sutra that is Uh, very well known in many different Buddhist traditions, not just the Theravadan lineage. In fact, it's more of a Mahayana lineage. And if you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. But just know that um, this is a greatly revered sutta or um, wisdom story to help us understand what true wisdom is. And I thought it was so interesting that they called it the Heart Sutra. That this wisdom is not something that we are meant to figure out intellectually. It's almost like the name in itself, which heart is actually, to my knowledge, at least in the translations, it's translated in different ways. 
heart is not actually mentioned in the sutra. And yet it's called the Heart Sutra. I thought that was just really fascinating. It's pointing to something just right there in, in the name. This isn't a figuring it out. And wisdom isn't a process in which we can figure it out. Wisdom is a quieting of the mind. Or at least it seems that's what's necessary. It's a dropping down from this area, perhaps more into this area. So what I'd like to do is um, read you the Heart Sutra and talk a little bit about it. And something to know, uh, Heart Sutra is actually, um, it can also be more directly translated uh, from its Pali title to the heart of the perfection of understanding or the essence of wisdom. The essence of wisdom. And, you know, that's really what we're doing here. For some of us, I imagine you come to sit because it's peaceful, it feels good, it's good for your health, That's all really wonderful. Keep coming back for that. And to also know that while you're you're doing that, there's something else that's being cultivated that's really not up to you. There's something that's deepening. And the Heart Sutta really points to this, if I can find it. You'll have to bear with me because my little marker fell out. Thus have I heard at one time. This is a translation. I I mentioned it's been translated by many different people and uh, has its own flair depending on who translates it. But this is by Gil Fonsdale, uh, who is a teacher in this tradition. So I thought it would be nice to read his translation. Thus have I heard at one time, the Buddha dwelt at Vulture Peak, together with a Sangha of 100,000 monks and nuns and 70,000 bodhisattvas. At that time, the bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara arose from her seat among the assembly and went to the Buddha. Facing him, she joined her palms together and bowed respectfully. With reverence, she said, I wish to explain for this assembly the Bodhisattva's heart of perfect wisdom, which is the universal womb of wisdom. Then the Buddha said, Excellent, excellent, great compassionate one. Then Avalokiteshvara entered into her meditation and coursing in perfect wisdom observed that all five aggregates are empty of own nature. Arising from her meditation, she said, and I'll just pause here. So she's going into her meditation, maybe similar to to what we were doing uh, just a little while ago. And what, what this is saying is that she observed that all five aggregates 
or empty of own nature. So I just want to break this down a little bit before we go on because it's important. The aggregates are really the processes of what we as living beings, and this can be for all living beings, what we are made of. We are the set of processes. And of course, when we, we think about ourselves, we think of ourselves as this solid entity, right? I am Kate. And so if you were to see me down the street, you wouldn't say, there's that set of processes named Kate. (laughs) You would say, there's Kate. Because that's how we understand ourselves and the people around us. It's how we understand our world. We make sense of it by taking these processes and making it more solid. And that's very functional. (laughs) And there's also something not quite true about it, right? And so there's actually, there's a sutta, um, uh, another, a, a different sutta where the Buddha is talking about the aggregates and talking about um, this self in terms of uh, a chariot, which maybe if he lived here at this point in time in Berkeley, it would be a Prius or something like that. And he's talking about uh, if you were to break down that Prius into all of its separate parts, you know, you wouldn't point to the carburetor and say, look, look at that Prius. <laughs> or you wouldn't see, you know, a wheel, you know, on the side of the road and say, wow, that's a really great car. You know, it would just be a wheel. And so there, it's all of these parts that create what we call a car. And so it's all of these parts that are who we are. And yet we see ourselves as this very solid thing. We identify with it very, very strongly. In fact, it can be really scary when we start to see that we're, we're not this solid thing called whatever, Kate. And so this is what um, is being talked about, this lack of solidity, this emptiness. And so Avalokiteshvara goes into the nature of emptiness, which we don't hear that word very often in this tradition, emptiness. But I assure you, we talk about it all the time. We might call it non-self, or we might call it impermanence. It's all the same thing. And so what's so beautiful in what I'm about to read, and you'll hear it, is anything that we begin to notice and hold on to and solidify as something what this particular teaching does is cut it, undercut it, so that there's no, nowhere really for uh, this idea of solidity to land. And so I want you to listen really carefully while I'm reading this. And so you might even do that with your eyes closed because um, what's being said is really not meant for this part of you. <laughs> it's not meant for your brain. It's really meant for for your heart, for the part of you that uh, knows all of this already. The nature of form is empty. The form is one of the aggregates, this body. The nature of form is empty. Emptiness is form. Form is not different from emptiness. Emptiness is not different from form. That which is from that which is form 
is empty. That which is emptiness is form. Feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness are also like this. Those are the other aggregates. Feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness are also like this. The nature of consciousness is empty. Emptiness is consciousness. Take a moment to think about that. Don't think about it, but (laughs) take it in. (laughs) What does that mean? The nature of consciousness is empty. Emptiness is consciousness. Consciousness is not different from emptiness. Emptiness is not different from consciousness. Notice what your mind is trying to do with this information. That which is consciousness is empty. That which is emptiness is consciousness. These dharmas, dharmas are marked with emptiness, neither arising nor ceasing, neither tainted nor pure, neither increasing nor decreasing. Therefore, in emptiness, there is no form, there's no feelings, no perceptions, no mental formations, no consciousness. No ear, no eye, no nose, taste, or touch as senses, right? No realm of eye, and so on, up to no realm of mind consciousness. No ignorance, and no extinction of ignorance. And so, on up to no old age, and no death, and also no extinction of old age and death. No suffering, no origin of suffering, no end, of, end to suffering, no path, no wisdom, and also no attainment. What? <laughs> wow. So what does that mean? Don't don't try to figure that out, but just to let it sit for a moment. No attainment. What are we doing here? (laughs) No wisdom. No path. Those of you who are familiar with the Buddhist path, we talk a lot about the path. We talk a lot about suffering. All of these, though, when you think about it, when it becomes up here, just becomes another thing for us to identify with and solidify. Our perceptions, our ideas of what all of these things are actually completely limit the truth of what they are. That's what's being pointed to here. With nothing to attain, the bodhisattva depends on perfect wisdom and their minds are without hindrance. Without any hindrance, no fear exists. Far removed from, uh, far removed from perverted thought, they are awake. 
All the Buddhas in the past, present, and future depend on this perfect wisdom in attaining their unsurpassed, complete, and perfect awakening. Right, so, if we're undercutting this idea that there's solidity in this body, in uh, feelings which in this tradition is the experience of things being pleasant, unpleasant, or somewhere in between, in our perception, how, how we're really um, coming into contact and understanding that which comes through our senses, our sense doors, and through our cognition, our mental formations, our thoughts, our memories, all of these things, it's all just processes. They're all processes. There's nowhere to land in solidity with any of this. And you'll notice your mind starting to go, wait, no, but, uh, and trying to create that solidity. That's okay. (laughs) That's actually really okay. And when you just sit with, oh, there's really nothing other than just Hearness. What is that like? Without having to identify with this body sitting here, with the mind that's attached to it, the conditions of this mind and body, which comes with its memories and the way that it's perceiving and cognizing this moment. When all of that is just seen as working parts and you're just here in the here-ness of this moment, what's that like? It's so simple. It's so simple, it's hard to see it. (laughs) It's so simple, it's hard to even talk about it. It's hard to intellectually understand it, even. It's why we have so many texts and lists and different ways to come at that which can't intellectually be known. So I'll finish the sutta, which is, um, has a really sweet ending, and some of you will have heard of this um, this mantra. But Avalokiteshvara goes on to say that uh, therefore for known the perfection of wisdom is the great mantra. In the bright mantra is the unsurpassed mantra is the unequaled mantra that can remove all suffering and it's true, not false. And then goes on to exclaim what this mantra is, which is gate, gate, paragate, parasamgati, bodhiswaha, which is uh, almost a celebration of going beyond uh, this little world that we create for ourselves, the little world of me, mine, yours, separate, It's so small compared to what's actually here, isn't it? In comparison to uh, 
the just there-ness, the here-ness of this moment and seeing the processes of what this actually is and how, boy, turn around right now and look, there's all these people in their process with you, not separate. (laughs) Part of the process. (laughs) And you know what's so amazing about that is there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing else needed. The cell phone goes off and there's noise and we could get into immediately this reaction of, you know, this is my Dharma talk. (laughs) Or you might say, oh, that's so embarrassing. (laughs) you know, Or they might be thinking that too. But actually... It's perfect. Nothing else is needed. Nothing else, you know, nothing's wrong with this. It's just part of the process of being in this here-ness together. So what I would like to do is uh, take a moment to... uh, talk a little bit about about this, which may seem ridiculous, <laughs> considering I'm trying, I just spent the last half hour trying to take you out of the thinking of it. But I also want to um, explore this a little bit and hear from different people, because um, I think it's really helpful to hear what how each of us are taking this in, or especially if there's confusion around it, which I imagine there, there may very well be. Like I said, this is not a Buddhism 101 talk. Um, so what we'll do, first of all, if, if anyone has any questions or any comments about what, how this is sinking in for them or how it's not sinking in for them, we'll take a little time for that. And then... Um, if, if we have a little bit more time, I have some, some ways for us to actually practice with this. So we'll just see how, how we do with time. Let's open it up now. And um, for the sake of, of all of us being able to hear well, I do have a mic here. Yeah, that's great. And so you can ask your question or comment in the mic. Hi. Hi. Um, it just occurs to me that... Um, that children live in this state, um, that their ability to move in and out of feelings and in and out of what's next and moving to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing um, is just very much what a child does. Or hopefully most children do. Watch in that space, I think that sometimes what's, what's lacking and what we are cultivating um, and can be cultivating is a knowing that it's itself. It's a knowing that, uh, that that's what's happening. That's actually one of the key ingredients is, is um, the knowing what's being known piece. And that, that part... 
I, I, I don't know that kids are always that in tune. They're just, they're just in it. Right. And then, uh, and maybe not even, um, you know, uh, developmentally having that capacity so much to know what's being known. Although, <laughs> I never underestimate the wisdom of children. They always blow me away with what they are in tuned with. Yeah. Is it working now? Okay. Yeah, the, the light's on. Great. Thank you, Kate. This is so timely. Great. <laughs> I've just been studying the Heart Sutra, and I do come from a different tradition. I'll let you guess which one. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> really? You can't tell? I'm really upright. Oh, are you I wear Zen? a lot of black. Yes. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> it was um, the upright. <laughs> is it upright, yeah. That's your first clue. Yeah. Um, so, um, it's, and so maybe my interpretation is, and I've just started studying this, it's a little bit different from yours, but I was sort of thinking, if I hear you correctly, um, there's, the idea of the Heart Sutra is that there's no ground for anything. And I was sort of thinking that maybe it's more that that's true and it's yeah. also about holding all things at the same time. Yeah. There is no form. There is no sensation. And yes, there is you know, a fly on the tip of my nose and it's bothering me. Yeah, <laughs> so there is a form. There is a sensation. That's the beauty of the sutta is it goes back and forth that emptiness is form and form is emptiness. You know, so in that, that thing that we called emptiness, you know, emptiness is a tricky wor- word, I think, um, in our, our vocabulary, because I think we think of this kind of black hole that <laughs> we're all just going to get sucked into. But actually, this is emptiness in, a, in, in the way that this is being broken down. That emptiness of, um, of, of real... Of, of essence. I mean, if you will break it down in this way, if I were to take my skin cells and put it under a microscope and see actually what it is, and if you were able to, if you had a high-powered microscope, and to see actually how much space is within, uh, between these cells, um, we're really, I mean, there's just, there's not much to us when we really break it down. We are these processes. And, um, and yet, this is, you know, also true. The relative and the universal truth. And the two are here. Or not here. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's important that we stay grounded in the relative reality also, that our ability to cognize and to create an understanding of I'm me and you're you is very functional and important. And there can also be this underpinning of understanding that goes beyond that. Okay, anybody else? Anybody confused? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I just wanted to say that um, it's funny. Well, I appreciate your saying it was perfect that a cell phone went off. <laughs> I heard you from out there. And it's, it was a neat experience because my first reaction was I was feeling compassion for whosoever cell phone that was because mm-hmm. oh. <laughs> I had turned it off. But I guess I didn't hit the 
power down, and then okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I was sure it was someone else's, and I was, you know, I felt, I guess, nice that I wasn't feeling anything negative towards someone, and then heard you say it was perfect. <laughs> Thank you. So you were having compassion for whoever's cell phone it I was, was, and it ended up being yours. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. That's great. <laughs> you know, it is such a great example of when the mind isn't, when we're not so contracted in this idea of things being a certain way. And we all have an idea of how things should be going, right? Most of the time. Um, most of us have been just programmed that way. We were raised that way. And, uh, you know, as we start to bring more awareness to this okayness with, with just this is what's happening right now, it's such a relief not to go into that contraction. It's another option, actually, isn't it? You know, you could. One option is to get frustrated and upset, and the other option is to open up towards what's here. Oh, cell phone ringing. Pleasant, unpleasant. No big deal. So it's really, um, it's all part of what what we're looking at here, what we're talking about. And I'm sorry, I did think of one other thing. As I've gone to to Dharma talks, I often wonder when different traditions are raised I mean I I often have this thought what does it matter Mm -hmm. like if it's there's I know I don't know all the different names Mm -hmm. but that's just something I always wonder what does it matter if it's this type Mm -hmm. of Buddhism or that type yeah maybe it doesn't matter so much I in my mind it's 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 dharma you know and sometimes yeah, Dharma comes from a certain lineage of Buddhism and sometimes it comes from a totally different place. And if it's all pointing towards the same thing, awakening, then I think it doesn't, it doesn't matter. There's uh, many fingers pointing at the same moon. You know, it's, it's this idea of there's just so many sources of wisdom and when we can open up to it and and know for ourselves what seems true, uh, then then that's that's good enough. Okay, thank you very much for a wonderful Dharma talk. Um, two points that occurred to me. The first is in response to the question about <coughs> what is it, what difference does it make about the different lineage, lineages and the different <coughs> schools of Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Um, on the, I completely agree on the one hand it doesn't matter because it's all dharma but I've thought about it a lot <clears throat> and, it, and it could also be important because there'll be some schools that attract some people and it could be that if that school wasn't available they wouldn't be open to the dharma at all they would never receive the dharma mm-hmm. and so I think it's important that there's a whole variety of different ways to look at the dharma so it attracts as many people as possible and then the second thought that I had regarding the, the cell phone, I thought there was a beautiful teaching on this Heart Sutra because really emptiness, from my understanding, we're talking about impermanence or how things don't have, are constantly changing. And so the cell phone is a great example. It rings and then it stops. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. So that's yeah. a, a great example of this Heart Sutra. We were just, we, that 
from my interpretation, that's the essence of what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. That it's all impermanent. If it's form, the body will at some point become impermanent mm-hmm. and then becomes empty. But at the same time, emptiness, this impermanence also takes form because everything around us has form. But at the same time, everything in this building, all of us here, all the furniture, at some point, meaning we, we try to think, we think in terms of permanent because we have a, a short lifespan. But in a thousand years, none of this will be here. In a hundred so, years, sure. none of us will be exactly. here. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm talking about the building or the, yeah. you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the <coughs> trees or the, all this. And that's yeah. what it's pointing to, that everything changes. Yeah, that's right. And I think I said it at the beginning, we, in the Theravadan tradition, we seem to put it in that context more of looking at an impermanence and non-self. And it's, it's all, it's the same thing. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, when you were talking about emptiness, and I, I close my eyes, and um, r- released, tried to release everything, it, it empty my space, uh-huh. and it turned out for a few seconds that it was. Uh, it was a feeling of expanding mm-hmm. and not having to even recognize anything but just let it flow. And that's the first time I've ever had a sensation, I mean, like that. So it was uh, wonderful. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, <laughs> wonderful. And also to know that emptiness is a part of awakening, but it's not... It's not Awakening, that it is, it is a part of, of awakening, but it isn't awakening. And so we can um, continue to cultivate all of this and just to know that um, the spaciousness and that openness and that feeling of just kind of being able to empty out is just as valuable as feeling your feet on the ground and your hands in your lap and knowing that you're sitting here right now and nothing more needed. Both have that, that value and both can be in that emptiness if we are seeing things clearly. It's great though, yeah. Mm, this is good stuff. <laughs> Great. Okay. So what I would like to do, um, since we have just a little bit of time, is bring us back into our um, connection with this. And if you weren't feeling connected with it, uh, maybe you will now. And if not, you know, it's not a big deal. Um, You know, I always find that I've I've been in this practice uh, not as long as, as some of you here, but um, for a while, for it's coming up on 11 years now, and um, I find that it's so interesting. Certain things at certain point just really resonate, and other things, you know, I think I kind of get it, but I don't really get it. And then later on, I just keep coming back, 
And at some point, just when it's time, you know, when it's your time to, to take it in, it just sinks in. And it's just how this practice works. So if that's true for you this evening, just to keep practicing and there's no needing to do anything about it, to try and get it, you know, it just lands at some point in the right right time with the right person saying it too. Sometimes that matters. So what I'd like you to do though is to come back into more of a meditative posture. But be comfortable. I'd like you to be comfortable as much as possible. It's okay if you want to kind of adjust in that way. And I'd like you to, uh, for a moment, to feel your body sitting here. And then I'm going to ask the question again of where you think your wisdom is located. And so as you sit here, instead of making this an intellectual exercise, asking that question to yourself and just let it float there. You don't have to answer it. But see what your attention does in the body. Noticing if there's any one part of your body you could say is your wisdom factory. Or is there something much more expansive, much more whole? Perhaps you're in touch with uh, wisdom not being your wisdom. Perhaps it's just wisdom. And perhaps you're in touch with the wisdom of this moment may not be the wisdom of the next moment. Perhaps you're in touch with the constant flux and process that is here. Perhaps the sense of self is not so solid. And as you are just here, notice if there's a part of you that is relaxed into that, 
there's something familiar about it, something that's not fearful, not contracted, not needing it to be different. So simple. And so I invite you to stay wherever you're at. And I'll dedicate the merit of our evening together And you may have a real sense that this cultivation of practice, of wisdom, of compassion is not just for us. It really isn't. That our awakening process is a part of a much larger process. And that may it be for the benefit of all beings. And I'd especially like to include our late Sangha member, Kenneth. May it be for all beings everywhere. May all beings be in touch with this fullness of emptiness. May all beings have the opportunity to experience just being here, this here-ness. May all beings everywhere have the opportunity to awaken this heart and mind. Thank you, everybody. If you wouldn't mind, if, and if you can, you're able to uh, stay a little bit later to help us pick up the room. That'd be greatly appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.